0: We're in Psalm 9 tonight, so if you will, turn with me to Psalm 9. I'm going to read all 20 verses of Psalm 9, but I'm really just going to focus on verses 9 and 10 mainly, and especially one concept from it, but we'll read the whole thing and after that we'll pray. In Psalm 9, verse 1, David writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out, their memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people's With unrighteousness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. Oh, For you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O oh, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises that in the gates Of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not be shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come, Father, and to uh, be able to preach your word tonight. I pray, Father God, as we study through Psalm 9, that you will guide my heart. Father, I pray, God, that, that all the deliberations this afternoon, all the seeking of you, Father God, was pointed in exactly the direction that you wanted it, Father, and that I am pursuing this, God, as you have instructed my heart that I'm being faithful obedient, Father God, and then your people can hear and be faithful and obedient themselves, Father. I pray for those, who, everyone who hears tonight, Father God, for anyone who does not know you as Lord and Savior, Father God, I pray that their hearts are made tender, Father that they are guided, God, to the truth by your very hand, Father God, and that, that you will enable their belief tonight, Father. We thank you, God, for the for the gift of the gospel, Father God, for the gift of Jesus Christ, whose precious blood, Father God, takes away our sins. We ask, Father God, your mercy in this time of crisis. We pray, Father God, that in the midst of a global pandemic, Father God, that you are no less brilliant, Father God, to us, that your will and your way, Father God, is no less uh pure to us, Father God, and that we desire to see it done, Father God. In the face of everything we, that we um, are, uh, that every obstacle that we have today, Father God, I pray, Lord, that we will seek out your will and your purpose, God. We thank you for the gift of Christ, God, more than anything else. We thank you, Lord, for a for son, Father God, who died in our stead. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. So, uh, let's talk about that one concept, the idea of the fact that, uh, that the Scriptures record here in verse ten, um, "O Lord, uh, that you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. What does it mean to be unforsaken? Or specifically, what does it mean that our God will never forsake us? Because that's the question at hand today. Now look, um, I I traced that. I, I looked at some other passages. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, the writer equates the steadfast love and acceptance of the Lord with our attitude toward material things. The author writes, he says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, as, as I looked at that and I said to myself, they that that can't be the only reason. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not that a freedom from, say, materialism isn't a, isn't a, a gospel truth that needs to be uh, delineated because it is a gospel truth and we need to cling to it. Uh, the writer of Hebrews wasn't mistaken. The, the Bible isn't full of errors like that. Now, if there's just a joke or something that should be taken lighten- lightly, it is something epic. Because God included it within the pages of Scripture. So it, it benefits us to go back and say, Well, God, how are you putting these things together? Um, how are you, uh, God, how are you dealing with materialism in the face of the fact that, that you've declared us you'll never leave us nor forsake us? Um, the standard that Christ will neither leave us nor forsake us demonstrates the everla- everlasting depth of the love of the Savior. That's his statement On his love. If we want to understand what it means that God loves us and that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Now, as I started to think about that, I said, well, what does that, how does that affect me? How does that, how does that make me a stronger believer? What am I supposed to use this information to do? And then I thought to myself, and really it's not a brilliant type of revelation or anything like that, but it was one of those things, brothers, that I looked at myself and I said, okay, so when I'm tempted. It should occur to my mind that God has promised He'll never leave me nor forsake me. It doesn't mean that I pursue temptation. It means that I have cause to pause in the middle of every temptation because God has declared this everlasting love that He has for me. Which means that I'm loving the kind of God... That is never going to leave me nor forsake me, so therefore, in the face of temptation to sin, my response should not be to test that God, but to be drawn closer to that God in the very same way that we would declare our love to another, and we might uh, give the implication that we can be trusted with a with a secret, we can be trusted with with the the confession of a heart. What we're saying to them is, is that you can now confess your, your deepest and darkest to me. You can trust me. Now, that also says that you can trust me in other avenues. Because you can trust me with, with your deepest, darkest confession, it means that also you can trust me to help to meet your needs, to keep you safe. You can help me to, meet your, uh, to be there for you emotionally. So I, as I looked at it, I just wanted to compare it to other instances. And I said... Um, So, why should we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal as our Lord commands in Matthew uh, 6 verse 20? Uh, Why stay focused on matters above and not matters below as Paul commands in Colossians 3 2? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Or why well, follow Jesus' words in Luke nine twenty three, which says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Why should we pursue our Lord by self-denial, by self-sacrifice, by gospel proclamation and obedience? Because our Lord will neither leave us nor forsake us. Why do all of these things that require, to be honest with you, a great deal of effort on our part? It takes a a great deal of effort on my part to stay focused on earthly things, to not store up earthly things, to trust the commands of God. It takes effort on our part to not go along with the crowd. While we've been given new proclivities and we've been given new hearts and new desires, all these things are new, we still battle against the flesh. Why do that? Why undertake this battle of the flesh so deliberately with so much strength and so much vigor, so much vitality why take it up new every single day because he's neither going to leave us nor forsake us Because this God who sticks closer than than a brother could possibly stick. This God who loves us infinitely. This God who gave His Son as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. This God right there deserves so much. He deserves for me to carry out His commands to the best of, of, of my ability. To seek a perfect kind of obedience to His commands. Why? Because He's neither going to leave me nor forsake me. Because He's infinitely faithful and eternally loving. Because He has stood by us when we were most broken by our own sin and vulnerable to the desires of the world. Because our failing practice of the eternal faith reflects our lack of intellect, our lack of conviction, and our lack of strength. Simply put... We should seek Him because even though we are absolutely terrible at seeking Him, we are terrible, Brother Brian, at pursuing Him. We are the most broken and the worst kind of followers it can be. We pursue Him. Why? Because He's neither going to leave us nor forsake us. Because He doesn't care that I, I lack intellect and I lack conviction and I lack strength. The fact that you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you means that men and women are required now to seek God, to learn how to pursue Him and to challenge their old nature for control of the new person. We're now required to seek God. Before we could not, before we had no ability, brothers, to seek God at all. We were as alienated and as cut off from the living God as a creation could possibly be. But now that the door has been opened through his flesh, now that the new hearts and new flesh, new spirit has been given, now that we've been given those new strength and new potentials and new proclivities, now that all that is true, we have to see God. We've got to learn how to do it. We have to learn how to do it. And we've got to challenge. What our nature can want to do. Look, in verses 5 and 6, as an example, David records the Lord's response to the unbelieving world. He writes, you've rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. The nations are the symbol of all who align themselves with the enemies of God. Now look, he literally blotted out names. Memory has perished as if they never existed. What a terrible, terrible fate to have never existed. Not to have of somehow magically avoided the suffering of this world as if your life was snuffed out before it even began. But to live this life, to struggle through this life, to have some accomplishments, even though they are grounded in our flesh, Brother Brian, and bringing no glory to God, they are the accomplishments of the lost man and not the saved man. Despite all of that, it still feels like an utter tragedy to look at the end of that time and have no marker, have no monument. A name that's been blotted out. A memory that's been washed away. Washed away. I've told you the story. As I was writing this, I recall being in class as a freshman in college. And having a class taught by a professor who was from behind the Iron Curtain. And back in the 80's it was still a thing. There still was an Iron Curtain. And, uh, she had grown up in, uh, behind, behind, behind the Iron Curtain under totalitarianism. And she talked about this, uh, this, uh, leader in her country who had been like second or third to the supreme leader. And there were all these images where he would appear in his military uniform behind the leader. And it turns out that this, this man, I, I've never known his name, was a, was a double agent. He was actually working for, spying for the West. And when he was caught, of course, he was executed. But there was a more insidious punishment. And the punishment was they literally airbrushed him out of every photo. They, they wiped his memory from existence. There is no record that this man ever breathed. What a terrible punishment to have never been. To live and groan and die and then have every memory just washed away. That's how the punishment is described. The very memory of them has perished. Has perished. That's how serious our God is. When He deals with the nations. The nations are the symbol of all who align themselves with the enemies of God. Paul describes them more completely, brothers, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world has blinded their minds. Those are the nations that David speaks of those who would align themselves, who would struggle and strive and war against the living God and his chosen people. The words of our Lord in this psalm are shockingly, shockingly clear in describing the fate of these nations. Their names are blotted out. And the very mom- memory of the unrighteous will be struck from history as if they never existed. Their final state is to be cast into hell. And brothers, forgotten entirely. Not mourned. Not wept over. No no. Uh, no pagan rituals to try to retrieve them, no candles lit for their good, no no alms paid to try to retrieve them, that in the end they are cast into a sinner's hell and forgotten forever. Unmourned in their punishment. I can see nothing else, that's exactly what our God is describing. The idea that the Lord deals with enemies infinitely harshly is a theme for this entire psalm. That our God will deal with his enemies. He is given opportunity for belief and repentance, and we'll talk about those things, but in the end, when those opportunities are squandered, when a life comes to an end, and and repentance has never been offered, and trust has never been placed in Christ Jesus, then understand, there is no solution but the final solution. And that is that the unbeliever is cast into a sinner's hell. The issue is the everlasting fate of any who would challenge the infinite righteousness of the one true God. And also, the identity of these people. Who is David talking about? Who is God talking about through David? Now, I find it troubling, disturbing, even in this form, to talk about it. Not because I'm shirking my duties, but because it is... It is a, It ought to be a difficult topic. You no, know, it's common, in you know, in our generation, especially kind of uh, in the twenty first century church, to believe that difficult passages, brothers, like like who uh, who will face the uh, the judgment of God eternally, that those passages of Scripture apply only to the people. That we all universally regard as the really evil people. Hell's for really bad people. Hell is for people who are criminals, who are murderers and rapists and child molesters, who are who are great killers like like uh, Hitler or Mao or Stalin. That's what hell is for. And that's not the truth. said our Lord teaches in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So, what, what our Lord clearly teaches is that we are, to begin with, those depraved. We are those nations that have despised the love of God and been deluded by the lies of the God of this world, Satan himself. We are those people. It's not some other people somewhere else. It's not someone else thats uh, that doesn't live around here. It's not somebody we don't know. The fact of the matter is we know these people. I- I'm not saying that in any way to be... Harshly judgmental, because it is not my duty to judge this. These are facts stated by the living God. But we would be fools to assume that we do not know the people for which these passages are uh, are addressing, because we do. We do. The crisis is our own crisis. It's not just around the globe because it is. We send missionaries around this globe because there are lost people in danger of breathing their last and facing judgment everywhere. But they are right around the corner. Right around the corner. Because it's every one of us. We are born with this. This is born into us. R.C. Sproul explained it best. He said, nobody's born into this world a child of the family of God. Nobody. Nobody. Not one single person is born a child of the family of God. We are born as children of wrath. The only way we enter into the family of God is by adoption. And that adoption occurs when we are united to God's only begotten Son by faith. When by faith we are united with Christ, we are then adopted into family of whom, into that family of whom Christ is the firstborn. We are born Dark, lost, twisted, wicked. It's how we are born. It comes out at such an early age. As we talked about before. We don't have to teach our children to be possessive. We don't have to teach them to be materialistic. We don't have to teach them to be self-centered. They learn this on their own because it dwells in their hearts. They start out so tender and so sweet... And we can fool ourselves into thinking they'll stay like that forever. But they don't, do they? You know, they don't have to go to school, Brother Kyle, to learn how to hit, do they? They may go to school and teach everybody else how to hit, right? They don't have to go to school to learn how to talk back, do they? They've learned how to talk back before they ever go. Because within us are dark, twisted, wicked hearts. Wicked hearts. Wicked hearts. And only faith which unites us with Christ can rescue our souls from what the Scriptures call that outer darkness. Which is the rightful place for those who reject the unforsaken nature of the gospel. And embrace the world. It's the only place. Now look, the response of the loving and infinite Savior is to do time and again what men and women are able to do on their own. See, there's really the measure here is that that, that God spends uh, so much time, 20 verses in Psalm 9, laying out how He tends to judge enemies. And and time and again, He declares within it, especially in verses 9 and 10, this notion that, that He will not forsake those who seek Him. And now what we have to do is talk about how men and women can be converted from one who, Brother Brian, never seeks God into someone who does seek God. From someone who seeks only the world and its riches and its form of righteousness to someone who's going to seek God and his riches, which are, and his righteousness, which are infinite and eternal. How does that transformation take place? And the issue here is not just that we are that broken and that wicked, but that we are that broken and that wicked, and we are unable to help ourselves. We are that broken and that wicked, and so debauched and so twisted and so black that there's no way that we will see God, and that is exactly what God's Word says. We cannot respond to the Father's love in any fashion which is acceptable to Him. We've talked, and it's one of those strange things that we say in the Bible Belt about accepting God. But the reality is our struggle is not in accepting Him. We've never found Him acceptable. And neither has He ever found us acceptable. It is only by the blood of His Son that He finds us acceptable. It is only by the the completed work of Christ Jesus on the cross that He finds us acceptable. It's only by the washing and regeneration of, of the Word that He finds us acceptable. God transforms us into someone who can be accepted by God. Paul explains in Romans three ten through 12 None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. No one turns aside. No one seeks God. So if the ones who seek God are never forsaken, but yet no one seeks God. It means we are all forsaken and not unforsaken. And we've got a real problem. Without the direct intervention of God, the incompetence of the lost soul overwhelms it, making it unable to respond to the Lord in any substantive fashion. Praise God it's not the end of the story. Praise God that when we are unable to help ourselves, He helps us. Praise God that when we are ruth and forsaken by the world, lost and alone, that Boaz has no reason looks across the field and beckons to us. Praise God. Praise God that we are redeemed when we don't have a kinsman redeemer. Praise God that He cries out to us and that we don't cry out to Him. The Lord's reaction to our inability is His direct action on behalf of the lost. And I think it takes two forms. I'm going to go through both of them briefly. One, He sent His Son to die for our sins and to make the gospel possible. And two, He spiritually guides us to His everlasting freedom. So one, He sent His Son to die in our place Substitutionary atonement to pay the price for our sins, and two, he takes over and guides us to himself. You and I can go out and we can share the gospel and we can be as thorough with it and complete with it as possible, but the reality is, this is that I can't guide anyone to the cross. I can't lead anyone there because I don't have to. Because it's God that guides people to the cross, and it's God who leads people to the cross, not me. I could never have found the cross myself. It had not been for God leading me. Zechariah's prayer in the book of Luke. Outlines the work of Christ Jesus God the Son. In coming to the earth. When it says in Luke through 79 To give knowledge of salvation to his people. In the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The discrepancies in our souls and our natures are dealt with by Christ on His coming. Christ comes and brings knowledge of salvation, which includes repentance and forgiveness of sins based on the tender mercy of God. God is merciful. He has no reason to be. He loves us so much that His mercy is His response to the lost state of the world. He is merciful. Tender mercy motivated God to bring knowledge of salvation and repentance and forgiveness to this world. Bringing with Him the sunrise from on high. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does it do? That powerful light that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it illuminates the murky depths of the human heart. It leaves no stone unturned in the stoniest of hearts. It will not allow us to just pass by. It shines the bright light in the murky depths of that human heart in which the seed of sin and death Germinates. It brings light to those terrible depths so they can be transformed. And then this light guides our path into the way of peace. Biblical obedience. As Psalm 119 verse 30 says, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me, an illuminated heart. Change gifted by God, now chooses what? The way of faithfulness chooses to set the rules of God before us. Because once again, the, the biblical reaction to the life of Christ being given, being traded for a, the flawed and broken life of a hellbound human is a life for a life. He said, he gave his life and now I give my life back. He gave his life to me and now I give my life back to him in obedience. That is just and that is fair. That's what we give. As stated above, the Lord then acts on our hearts of the gospel to free us from sin. Though humanity has no way of spiritually making sense of the divine simplicity of the gospel, we are hostile to its truth and suppress it in our hearts. As Paul explains in Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We are all truth suppressors. God has to act or I will always hold down the truth in my life. And how does He act? In the book of Isaiah in verse in chapter 42, verse 16, he says this, the prophet, um, I, I, I I'll in first, the prophet characterizes the reaction of the Lord on behalf of the dire condition of His chosen people by saying, and I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. We're as blind as we can be. And what does God do? He takes our hand. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. In my own home where I'm familiar, if struck blind, maybe I could find my way around so I know where everything is. But as a blind man, an unfamiliar territory, I am helpless and I am hopeless. God's response to the fact that my heart suppresses the truth. God's response to the fact that my debauched heart refuses to cry out in mercy and refuses to admit my sin and confess my sin. God's response to all of that is to take the hand of the blind man. Take the hand of the blind man and lead them on paths that they have not known. He says, I will turn the darkness before them into light illuminate everything. The rough places in the level ground. These are the things that I do. And I do not forsake them. If you're caught in the snares of bondage to your sin. Then Jesus. Then the will of Jesus. Guides the way today. And the power of God. The Holy Spirit will enable you. To blindly walk the right path. A path you could never choose on your own. A path you can't even see or recognize on your own. God will lead you to. He'll turn the midnight of your soul into broad daylight and the rockiest crags into the smoothest, safest ground. Our Lord does this because you're not forsaken, but you're claimed. There's the difference. I was once forsaken. You were once forsaken in your sin, lost and bound for hell. And God, out of the midst of the fire, claimed us, redeemed us, justified us, He saved us. Claimed by God for His purpose, by the power of the Gospel, and through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And all I can say to close today is, obey His call and be saved. Allow Christ to illuminate the path, to lead your blind soul by the hand, and to show you a new life in His goodness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the opportunity to come and to preach. And I pray, Father God, that I've done what I was called to do. I thank You, God, for the... For, for Psalm 9, Father, I thank you, Father God, for allowing us to meet. And Father God, I pray that anyone who hears this, God, they could hear the, the blessing, Father God, of the gospel. They could surrender their hearts to it, Father God. They could put aside any, opportunity, any hope of helping themselves, Father, and in their absolute incompetence, throw themselves on the mercy of the one true and living God. We know, Father God, that Christ has come, that He has died, and He reigns now, Father God. And he beckons God, those who are his, to come and be saved. We ask you, please, God, now to bless us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.